Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Greg Feeney to our show. Dr. Feeney is the provost for Bluegrass Community and Technical College in Lexington, Kentucky. Hi, Greg. I'm excited to have you on our podcast today. Hello, Dave. It's good to be with you. Tell me about Bluegrass Community and Technical College and why students select your institution. Be happy to. So we are a, a comprehensive community college, like many others. So our largest population is transfer. We're the number one transfer institution in the state of Kentucky uh, to our four-year partners. And uh, we serve a 14-county area, and we have seven campuses to help us serve that. So we have uh, three right here in Lexington and some in the um, surrounding communities. So we're part of a 16-college system that is represented or named Kentucky Community and Technical College System. Uh, But each of the 16 colleges are individually accredited, but we do share a curriculum. And the faculty governance process is through not only local, but in relation to curriculum, is through that system Senate. So there's Senate members from each of those 16. And we find that that really supports our state well as far as students transferring when they need to transfer or if somebody was in one location and had employment and they transfer here in relation to another job, they can continue right in that program as long as we have it. So we have many of the standard programs that a lot of community colleges have, but we have a few unique ones. So our newest one is an orthotics and prosthetics program. So we're only one of six institutions in the entire United States that offer that program. So uh, we would have been the seventh, but one of them had dropped. So the closest one to us is about six hours away. And this developed out of one of our workforce initiatives. So that uh, we're in our first year of that program and it's just hit the ground running strong enrollment. And then the other one is we have an equine program. And that relates greatly to where we are at in Kentucky. So we're in the central part in the bluegrass region here. And part of that program that gets a lot of attention is our jockey school. But it's anything from barn management to, you know, basic animal care to uh, our jockey program. So it's been it's been fun. That that sounds like a fun program to to watch that for sure. It is. It's always uh, something that we want to have on the tour is to take some of our folks out to the barn and and see how that facility is run and and, uh, just watch the students working with the horses. Yeah. Well, what's new at your college? So uh, we've been putting a lot of energy into dual credit. And so obviously dual credit has been around for some time, but we have we've kind of upped our game with it. And the results that we've seen with that is last year we had a 25 percent increase in enrollment with dual credit. And we continued working on that this fall. Our last enrollment report showed a 65% increase in dual credit. And a lot of that has been through uh, our continued efforts to partner more closely with the schools and, um, you know, strengthen those pathways. And that leads to another area of our college that's new. So we recently organized all of our academic areas into pathways to make them a bit more student friendly. And if a student, you know, decides to, 
uh, adjust their journey a little bit. If as long as it's within that pathway, then some of their prereqs are, are met and we're on that journey. So there's a little bit of that tightening up still left. That will be ongoing, that tightening up. But we've made significant progress with that. And it's gone so well that the largest area we serve, which is Fayette County, which is located where our largest campus is at, has invested significant money into tying their pathways into ours. So we now have one of our employees that 100% of their time is working with them on their curriculum to tie their curriculum into our pathway. So that again, exemplifies the effort that we are putting into dual credit and um, the return that we're seeing in that. The other thing, uh, another thing that's been a major focus for us is our customized training. So here we call that workforce solutions, but that is uh, the customized training that we offer to the community. So that could be, you know, 99% of the time that's our local industry, but it can also relate to uh, nonprofits and other organizations that need like leadership training or what, what, what have you. But a lot of it is in relation to our programs and that can be credit or non-credit. And we, the reason why we put a lot of energy into that is that in our relationship with industry, we're seeing that it allows us to be much more flexible in meeting their needs in a much, um, in a much faster way, in a much more expedient way. So we've invested in that and, and our um, revenue in that area and our work in that area has increased significantly in this past year as a result. And we're finding that in, in, in doing that, we're supporting the needs of our community much more. And sometimes in orthotics and prosthetics is a good example of that. That started as a workforce training project. And so they were having a hard time recruiting employees that had a basic skill set to walk into these facilities and help them in the manufacturing of their product. And we did a project where we uh, recruited, hired people with no skills in that area and trained them and ramped them up. And it went so well and the word spread on that that uh, we ended up developing it into a full-fledged program. So that's sometimes that is what happens. Other times we keep it within the customized training realm. But it's, you know, kind of a, it's been around forever, but I think I could see this gaining in popularity as a, as a from the aspect of it allows us to be much more flexible and meet the, the educational needs of our community. Maybe not in the traditional way, but I don't think that matters so much because it's a very meaningful way in supporting those organizations and just as important, providing students with a, a living wage and a nice income and an introductory into a field that they might not have had the chance to do. So I mentioned the uh, pathways before, and that has been, in addition to dual credit, and that is really, is really uh, is being transformational for our college. And as another example of that, because we're looking at how every area of the college and every function feeds that pathway. And so it's been another way or that process. So it's been another way for us to kind of have a different lens on what we're doing and how it supports a student's path and their success. And, you know, as a small example, yet a very meaningful one is we are revamping our teaching and learning center as a result. Because in this, we've seen some gaps where our faculty needs support in order to support those students. And so we are pulling in some of our faculty leadership, 
folks that have been involved in a lot of our uh, training from several different angles, and we're rebooting that teaching and learning center. One last thing I would like to mention here, because it's been really exciting for us, is we have, um, you know, several two plus twos with our four-year partners, right? So we call them kind of a, a, a two plus two. Sometimes those are three plus two, two plus three, two plus four, right? And so uh, in working to tighten that as much as possible, we partnered with support from Toyota. We partnered with the University of Kentucky and we truly have, uh, we have what I would truly call our first two plus two and that UK doesn't even offer the first two years of this program. So it's an engineering program, engineering technology. So we have integrated um, engineering technology and computer engineering technology. So we have two tracks on that. And they can live in the in UK residence halls, which is in the same community as our main campus, um, our, our manufacturing campus, which is about seven, eight miles away. We have a shuttle that goes back and forth for that. But it's been a real partnership with UK. And we found that not only is it serving our students well, but how this kind of builds on itself because the the financial support for this program has come in like it I haven't seen before. And I think that industry and the community is grateful in recognizing this partnership and the efficiencies that come with it and the strength that we bring to the table from a technology standpoint and students not being afraid to turn on a machine and knowing how to do that and how to troubleshoot it to the theory that a four-year graduate brings. So it's been, we're in our first year of that program as well, um, but both those tracks are full and we look forward to seeing what the future holds there. So so let me make sure I get this right. So the first two years is only at your college and not at UK? Correct, correct. Wow, yeah. that's very exciting. That really brings the partnership together. What a great idea. Yeah, and we did it from the very beginning. So like our faculty worked with their faculty on developing the curriculum for this program. It had to go through our Senate. It went through UK Senate. I mean, it was, it, it was a, a new step for both of us. And the right people were in the right positions and were get it done type folks. We did this in about a year and a half, which doing something that different, working with two institutions you know, industry may not feel like it's radical, but most of us know it's radical. <laughs> no, that's pretty radical. When you say, when you say, you know, colleges in the traditional way, that seems to kind of be going to the wayside to meet workforce needs. So it sounds like you guys are really getting, yeah. getting ahead of that by sure, for sure. Um, well, the one thing I noticed when I was, you know, the, the, the fun part I like about my job is I kind of stalk you guys and try to figure out what you're up to before we meet. And I noticed that um, BCTC just received $4.5 million from the Department of Labor on this Strengthening Community Colleges Training Grant Program. Is that correct? It is correct. And, you, and it, you're doing some great research because we were just notified of this last week. Yeah, right. I, I was, I think that is so, you know, because it was, there's only 13 community colleges that got that. And so you're one of them. First of all, oh my goodness, I, I feel very blessed that I get a chance to talk to you about this. Um, so, so tell me about the process and, and what do you think, um, uh, what's entailed for the students and of course the institution alike? Where does this go? So the exciting thing about this particular grant, I mean, any grant you get obviously is just wonderful opportunity to be either well, all the above. So but bottom line, it's, you know, in impacting students, but really this funding is directly 
for that. So we have, it's, you know, the vast majority of it is going to go to positions and outreach and support of those students. So there's a, I've you know, been talking about dual credit. There's a significant dual credit component of this. So students can start while they're in high school and then the infrastructure to support that. Also, this is another partnership that we've had with the University of Kentucky, but through their medical center. So we're working with uh, the College of, of uh, Nursing over there, several other health areas and anywhere from curriculum and the opportunities that that will provide for students to continue, as well as um, for students to have, you know, the work and learn experience and, and being on the floors and their clinicals. So it's, it's basically just the infrastructure for that in pulling in greater numbers to support the healthcare needs that we have, particularly in our region. Okay. Well, so with a lot of the work we've done with this, if I just focus on nursing, so through this and one other initiative, we not only will be starting students earlier, but if even looking at the traditional route, which doesn't take into account starting students earlier, we'll have 115 additional graduates a year. And how long is the grant for? It's a four-year grant. Oh, good for you guys. Oh, wow. That's exciting. Okay. So we're very excited about it. When you, when you talk about pathways, is that just for juniors and seniors in high school? Is that for all high school students? So it's for all high school students. The main, fo- depending on what field they're going into, is going to depend on how relevant it is at what grade level, right? I see. So students can start in our technical areas as early as their freshman year, and we can um, for our transfer areas, it's normally their junior year, but we can have exceptions for that depending on a student's skill level. Oh, good. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's change subject for a minute. Let's talk about you. Can you talk about yourself and the path that led you to become the provost at BCTC? Sure. So this is, this is always uh, when I'm on, you know, I've been on several panels and stuff where we talk about this and I, I enjoy it when I'm not the first one to go because my path is not as typical as everyone else's I have found, but it fits my whole academic journey as far as how I ended up here. So I did not at any time set out to end up in a position like this. And if you were to ask me when I started it, so I'm in my 25th year at this college. And I started as a faculty member and I had, this was not even in my realm of options. And it wasn't that I didn't want it. It's just that I love teaching, but even getting there. So I'm going to back up. So I'm a first generation college student. Uh, there's, I have, there's five kids and um, five siblings and we were uh, encouraged to go to college and every single one of the five completed. So even though, you know, I would say I was so green when I started my freshman year at Northern Illinois University, um, it was never a question whether or not I would go. But once I got there, it was the university and its uh, faculty and staff that just made a significant impact on my life because that first year I was kind of wide-eyed and, and, and learned a lot through error not through in it, um, uh, having that knowledge before. And if I, you know, if I had that knowledge to begin with, I think it would have been a very different path, but I don't, I don't know if I did, if I'd end up where I am now, right? Because of the, the heart that that gave me for the difference 
that uh, college employees can make to students who are like me and the difference that they can make in, in opening doors for them and not just teaching the subject matter, but teaching them what it means to be a good student and also what an education can do as far as opening doors and the opportunities that that's going to provide. So I had a phenomenal time at Northern. I uh, worked and went to school at the same time, worked for the university in several different roles. And in my junior year of that, I was hired to be an orientation guide. And that was just another very influential time of month. I had a phenomenal uh, supervisor in that boss. And it's Dr. Denise Rohde, who is no longer at NIU. She's retired, but just had a phenomenal career there. And she and I emailed, I emailed her just this morning. So we're still in contact to this day, but, but like many people, you know, when I've talked with her or joked with her about her making an impact on me, it always confuses her a little bit. And I think for a lot of folks in higher ed, that is the case, right? Because we're just doing our job. We work with so many students, but she was very impactful. So, so impactful, I continued on for my master's and had an assistantship through her office in addition to some other work that, that, that I was doing. But by the time I finished my master's, so that both of those were in communication. So one was in just general communication, the other one was in organizational communication. And I chose those because I, it made me nervous. And now, you know, I have a completely different view on this to where I don't think it would have mattered if I had majored in finance, I could have done anything. But at that point in my mind, and this shows, you know, to some extent how now you, I was in the process, I thought, well, if I'm in, if I'm in finance, if I'm in business, if I'm in nursing or engineering, that's what I'm stuck with for the rest of my life. And I wanted something general. And that's why I went with communication because I thought it's going to give me a lot of options and all I have to do is sell it. And so I did my bachelor's and master's in that. It was a great program for me. I felt like I developed and grew a lot, but I was done with higher ed at that point. So I you know, was in the Chicago area, applied for some jobs there, and I worked for a subsidiary of Panasonic. Uh, three months later, this is a story I always tell my students, is that I was at a holiday party, and I was talking to one of my dad's friends, which was like was an hour and a half away from where I was working, and he was asking me about my education and what I was doing, and I was talking about it, and about 45 minutes later, in my mind, I'm thinking, I'll never get away from this guy. Right. But after like in the next few minutes, he said, we've been looking for somebody to manage our home office as a farm mutual insurance company for a couple of years. And we haven't found the right fit. Would you interview? And so I'd only been at this other company for a couple months, but I thought, what the heck? And I interviewed for that. Long story short, they hired me. And I worked there for three years. And what I loved about it when I first joined it is it was in significant debt and uh, organizationally was kind of a mess. And um, with the team that I worked with, uh, we got it cleaned up within a very short period of time. And within a couple of years where we were operating at a significant profit. The problem there was, is I became bored after that. It was no longer challenging and it was just coming to the office to have a regular day and there was nothing major to fix. And so I started doing volunteer work for the American Red Cross and I was teaching for them and I loved it. And I found that that was feeding me more than my job was now. So I decided that I was going to go back for a PhD to make myself as competitive as possible. 
in this process. And that's how I ended up at the University of Kentucky. I'd never been to the state before. And they offered me a nice package. And that's why I went there. And I remember thinking, I'm going to get in and get out. I love the Chicago area or a larger city. But I was there maybe only two weeks to a month. And it, I connected with it that well. And I just thought, I could, I could live here. Like, I really like this Lexington area. So then doctoral program went very well, very meaningful for me. I'm in my last year of writing my dissertation and working on a couple grants as well as teaching one graduate course. And I'm walking down the hall. One of the professors who works with the scheduling of all the courses says, Feeney, they need somebody over at Lexington Community College, which is who we used to be uh, when I first started to teach a class. Will you go teach it? And I started giving excuses. I'm writing. This grant is taking a lot of my time. And she repeated it. So I thought, okay, you know, it's just kind of the voluntold thing. So I did. And I am so grateful. I was walking down the hall that day because I felt like I was home with what the students needed. What I was able to offer them was more than what I was able to offer the students at UK. The graduate students didn't need me. A lot of the junior and senior students didn't, didn't need me. They, I would guide the conversation and that was fun and talking about the theory was fun and, and talking about their research ideas was fun. But when I was at the community college teaching that course for the first semester, I saw that not only do these students need what I have to offer them as far as the subject goes, but a lot of them are lost as far as what an education can do for them, how they maneuver higher ed period, um, what it even means to be a good student, and so it was just a blast. And I really connected with it. And a position came open. And like I said, 25 years later, here I am. And it's, that's just been the journey. So as far as working in that, I was in a faculty line. Um, still have that to retreat to. It was in a faculty line for years. And I was encouraged to go for a department chair. This was even before I was tenured. So I, I did that the year before um, I went up for tenure enjoyed that and did that for about five, six years. And then I was encouraged to apply for a dean position, an academic dean position. And each one of these steps, I've been hesitant because I, I enjoyed what I was doing. And when I finished the, uh, was in my last term of being division chair, I was looking forward to being back in the classroom, but was encouraged to do the academic dean thing. And I had some ideas on how Candidly, our college could be better, how our faculty could be better supported. And so I wanted to see if I could walk the walk and step into that. So I did and was in that for a bit. And then this other dean that has broader responsibilities, that position opened up and I ended up there. And then uh, the, we had a chief academic officer who was a vice president of academics, and he left and moved on. That was Dave Helmick, who you interviewed, a, you know, a, just a while ago. And this was a national search, and I thought long and hard on if I wanted to, you know, take that extra step, and I did, and, and thoroughly enjoyed it and what I could offer it and how it was challenging me in new ways. And then... Uh, about three years into that, our college moved to a provost model. And so now I work with all of our academics, chief academic officer, and all of student affairs as the chief student affairs officer. So 
it's been a, I've only been in this, I'm getting ready to conclude my third year with it. So it's been a great career. And even though I may have been intentional at the time when the opportunity came up and I was ready for that opportunity, this is another thing I say, you know, for folks that are like me, it's just important that you're working hard and that you're ready for those opportunities. And then you have the choice of whether or not you want to go for it. And then if you're lucky enough, whether or not you want to take it, but this was never anything that I thought I want that. And the obvious question that we get often when we're in these roles is, so when are you going to go for the presidency? When are you going to do that? Right. It's always like, well, you know, one, I'm not in this very long Two, you know, I sincerely do not know whether I want that because I, I enjoy what I'm doing. And in my mind, before I retire and things are passing quickly before I retire, I would like to be back to the classroom one day. Mm. So that's my long story. No, no, actually, Greg, I, I want to ask you a question then since you, at the same institution, went through faculty, through department or division chair, moving on up now to a provost. What's the pros and cons on that, doing that at the same campus compared to, for, for an example, for me, when I became dean, I left one college and went to another totally different uh, university in the state. So I didn't have that, we know you, we remember you as a faculty member or as an associate dean. So it, it, that transition to me seemed easier because I didn't have uh, that relationship sometimes with faculty. How was that for right. you moving from, from one of the colleagues to, oh, now you're the supervisor, now you're the boss? Yeah, so uh, it, it's, it was very, it still is very educational. So I'm going to give you a couple different components of that. So one is, I think both a strength and a challenge with it is that the, they knew me. And the vast majority of our faculty and staff here trusted me as well, right? So I had a good reputation with them. And that was that I've always placed, and you'll probably hear me answer some of this as we continue this or work this in to, to some answers, but relationships are vital for me. And I think they are key to leadership, key to teaching, key to everything in life. And so because I value that so highly and invest in that, I think that that has um, made that transition easier. However, like many people, I am not perfect and, and I am not liked by everyone, right? So I think for a lot of people, they were happy to see me step into this role. And for some people, I'm sure they were like, oh, great, right? I mean, that, that, that's just the way it, all, it always is. But, you know, it, it emphasizes um, for me the need to know who I am and to um, work through that and dedicate that time when, when it might be bumpy. An aspect of it that was also hard for me is that within the first two years, I had to really wake up to the reality of like, no, I am an administrator in their eyes. And there were so many times where I would have, I wanted to be like, uh, it's me, remember? Like I'm, I'm, I'm your colleague. We, yes, I'm making this tough decision, but you know who I am. I mean, you, you know what my values are, but with a lot of people that is the case, but with a significant group, it, it was a distraction for them. And I, I quickly saw that even though I didn't feel different and I didn't feel different with a title, they looked at me differently and I had to be comfortable with that. And also 
you know, deal with that in conversation to where hopefully others would feel comfortable with it as well. I think it's brought a casual nature more than you might get in um, when someone for the outside, but I think that's been good. At least it's served us well as far as uh, the approachability. The other thing is that was uh, continues to be humbling and I have certain voices in my head is I was pretty, you know, professionally vocal before. I was somebody that spoke up a lot when others did not, did so in a very professional way, but had high expectations. And when I felt like something wasn't working, I was not afraid to articulate that again in a very respectful way. But you know that with each position that I've stepped into and have been exposed and responsible for more areas of the college, I was exposed to the wonderful chaos and the complexity of sometimes making what others might perceive as a simple question or a simple solution. And so it was humbling to be like, wow, this isn't as easy as I thought it would be just to do this one thing. And, and to demonstrate, now what I've worked on doing is demonstrating that complexity a little bit more and sharing it a little bit more. So, so others are aware of it, but that's also been just a, a fascinating part of that journey of, of being put in the spot of, okay, you know, you've complained about this program forever. Now you're in the position to fix it, fix it. Hmm. Good point. Well, what's been the proudest moments for you so far as the provost? You know, uh, this question comes up every so often too. And people often point to like, you know, we've had three major grants and we've had those, or, you know, I was very proud of, you know, the building that we were able to get. And we're, we're, since we're newer, even though we're, we're 75 years old in relation to the uh, over 75 years old in relation to the, the colleges that merge together, but us as BCTC and moving to a new campus and building a new campus, right? We've had lots of that, that kind of growth. But the thing, the things that I'm most proud of, again, come back to that relationship component. So I have, and this can sound trite, but it's my honest answer with it. I have an incredible team, um, an incredible group of colleagues that I work with to where, you know, what I would argue is a very challenging time in higher ed and we're doing it and they're doing it. And these are folks that, you know, the majority of the time, all I need to do is get out of the way and they're going to perform well, but also we're better because we are not always on the same page. We challenge each other a lot and we're all pretty inclusive of our teams. And so we end up with, I think, solid input and I'm very proud of that process. Um, Other things that relates back to when, you know, I talk about what attracted me to a community college, the things I'm most proud of, and this can be even on a daily basis sometimes, um, is literally opening doors for students. So providing them opportunities to get into college, supporting them on their journey when they think they can't do it and all they see is hurdles in front of them. And, you know, whether it's my position or my team, but, you know, all of us have examples, especially at community college, we have examples of galore of where we're able to do this and make this impact on students' lives. And that is um, huge for me. Uh, Two more things that I wanna mention here though. One is uh, we have a relatively new president. He's in his uh, third, I think third or fourth year. And um, 
he's he's provided for a, a lot of disruption, um, restructuring, and that's where the provost model came from. And my, from my perspective, it's been wonderful for us. I mean, we're we're growing as a result. He also has a real heart for global initiatives, and so we've started. Um, a global center that's centralized a lot of global efforts that we've had for a number of years, but it's taken it to the next level. And I'm very proud of that. And also proud and excited that it's just at the beginning stages for where this will end up. The last thing that I want to mention here, that is something I often throw in when this question is asked, because I think it exemplifies the importance of diversity is that I'm proud of being um, an out gay administrator. And uh, I think that that has been phenomenal for, I know when I was a student and uh, which was in the eighties and, you know, doctoral program in the nineties, but when an administrator or a faculty member, which was incredibly rare, would identify, it meant something to me Mm. and it encouraged me on my path and let me know that those opportunities are there. And I take that responsibility very seriously. And one of the reasons why, you know, it's not on my shirt or anything, but one of the reasons why I often share that is I want young kids or young students like me, or whether they're non-traditional students and don't view that as an option for them to know that it is there. It also reinforces the importance of knowing who you are because not everybody here has liked it, <clears throat> just as that is the case in the world. And uh, I have several valuable lessons from that, both in demonstrating my leadership, both in setting the example, and also just my own personal growth and working through that uh, messiness. So that's, that's, uh, those are my, my things I'm proud of there. I think you should be very proud of all those things. That's very cool. Uh, what's been some of the biggest lessons you have learned as an academic leader? So uh, one of the things I'll start with, I guess, is what I just talked about, and that is know, knowing who you are. And I'm going to expand it just beyond the criticism in relation. So like uh, I had a faculty member come to our president after he was here not very long, and he said to the, our president, it's really embarrassing to have a gay provost here. I hope you're going to do something about that, right? And so on one hand, you know, it kind of made me like laugh a little bit. And I was like, seriously? On the other, I would be lying if I didn't say it wasn't a little jab to the stomach to where it's like, seriously? I mean, all the incredible things that we're accomplishing, and this is what you're distracted by. Another aspect of it is it reinforced to me the importance to not hide it for other individuals and especially our students. And I was thrilled with the president's response to it. But um, it also relates to, even if I step away from that generally, being in these roles sometimes can be very tough in relation to criticism, in relation to everything being questioned and people jumping to conclusions right away. So what it gets to is this, is that an important lesson is we, you need to know who you are and you need to stay centered on that. And when you're attacked on something or people question it and you might think like, man, they're questioning my integrity. What is that? I mean, this is insulting. 
is not buying into that. If you know who you are, you know you operate with integrity, you know you follow um, and practice ethical leadership, don't get sidetracked by it. It doesn't mean you don't stop and have the dialogue, that you don't engage in it and pull out more and work to improve that communication process. But I think in order for a lot of people to be happy, you need to know who you are. And the people that I've seen, it's, I've learned that through my journey, but also people seeing people struggle in the roles, in leadership roles, and thinking it's not for them. And it's often from the angle of feeling uh, beat up and other people cr criticizing them and it making more of an impact than it should. And so I think a you know, really important lesson and something that I talk about in development a lot with my team is, you know, it's really important to know that. And when you find yourself reacting to others when they're being critical and you're reacting in a negative way or a defensive way, you may be getting away from that a little bit to where if you're confident in who you are as a leader, it's easier to work through that stuff than it would be um, if, if, if not. And that relates to, you know, I see a lot of people uh, not operate with uh, an extreme level of integrity. And I always exemplify this because it's, it's not in relation to lying or, you know, cheating, or it's more in relation to people often avoid difficult conversations because they don't want to get into the messiness of it, or it's just easier. And they think, you know, this may not matter. Maybe the person will move on or maybe they'll drop it. And I think it's important to stop and have those conversations and they strengthen you and you benefit from them as a team, as a college, as a, you know, a group in the long run, obviously how you do all that matters. But to me, that's an important part of integrity. If you're, you're not just, um, brushing over something. And also it's not fair to them if you're not taking the time, because I have found with some folks that with a little bit of coaching, they, they and their perspective make a phenomenal impact. And sometimes that's lost because we are so nervous or we want to avoid what we perceive that conflict might, might be. Lastly, the only thing I'll throw in here is the, um, Another thing that I don't think would surprise my team at all, but I think it's important to have fun. So I think it's important to joke. I think what we deal with is serious and there's a lot going on and it's stressful. And if you're not bringing some fun into it, I don't, you know, for me, I don't know that I could do it. Yeah. Excellent points. Excellent points, Greg. What do you think are the major challenges that colleges will face over the next five to 10 years? So from what I've seen in my experience, in addition to, you know, your typical things like enrollment, finances, the lack of funding, uh, uh, not that those are easy, but I think in some respects, those are easier to deal with than some of the other challenges that we're facing right now. And a major one that we've seen since the pandemic has been a major shift in what employees expect and um, turnover and uh, what the cycle of someone's career will be. So, you know, in hiring new folks, we're seeing that their expectations for a job are very different than what they were before. And, you know, I think some for, and even with current employees, and much of that is operationalized from people wanting more flexibility, people wanting more remote work options, and balancing that out when a lot of the work we do is so student facing 
But that's a real challenge that I'd say that we are still in the throes of kind of working our way through and how to balance that out to attract really good talent, keep really good talent, as well as, um, you know, serve our students to the best of, of our um, ability. Another major challenge that is a little older than the pandemic, <laughs> but is the uh, communities, the public's perception of higher ed. And, you know, I probably went through, this is pretty classic with me when I first deal with something, I might like complain about it a little bit, if not to anyone else, at least to myself. And then, you know, one of my mantras is control what you can control. And so we, we try to be very strategic in not saying, why don't you see our value? Because that's not going to work. What we try to be strategic is, is in demonstrating that value, is making sure that when we're talking with our legislators, when we're talking with our industry partners, that we are exemplifying what our value is, what we bring to the table, what we can offer. And I have found for a lot of our community that is easier to do with our technical programs than it is with our gen ed programs. And so that's where we are putting um, a lot of our energy in is in to articulate all the programs we have, including gen ed. You know, recent thing that that has led to for us, so both from an industry need standpoint, but it's also helping us in this message process to demonstrate our value a bit more to people who doubt it is competency-based education. And that is, you know, for some of those folks, if they can quantify it to some degree or see that, you know, here's the outcome. These are the specific things. And they're, they're less theoretical from the sense that every component of the course is measured until, into how it fits into that. And what somebody brings to the table is also valued. So we're not just having them jump through our hoops. So I think that those are, that's an opportunity, just an example of an opportunity of how to, 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 to challenge that. But more than the finances, more than the enrollment, I'd say that that's those two variables for us right now, I think are um, our biggest ones. And also how to be more flexible in meeting the needs of industry. And we're working to do that. But in doing it, I still feel like higher ed to some degree, I'm always still a little cautious in saying this, but we're so antiquated. And our whole process in curriculum is pretty antiquated. And we, we need to be much more uh, agile in responding yeah. to needs. Yeah, good point. Um, Non-traditional students sometimes struggle more at traditional colleges and universities. What can community colleges do to serve this specific student population better? Um, I think the biggest thing that we can do is uh, providing for that flexibility. So providing many different options, and that's not just in your coursework and your curriculum, but that's in the modes of how to complete those. And then that those uh, wraparound services are there. We have, we are um, dabbling in, and even though I think uh, folks here would argue we're doing a lot more than that, I feel like we're just at the beginning stages of, you know, there's so many terms to describe this. The one that I often use is kind of a success coach model, and which is very different than advising, right? So in how we, uh, what that means for the faculty role who, you know, advise in relation to their programs. But we have found that for many of our students, particularly our first gen and our non-traditional students, 
that that success coaching is critical. And also something, uh, the flexibility that it allows them to do so in the context of what their life is. So if it's, and often it's all the above, whether it's a family, whether it's a job, and then that success coach help helping them navigate that. So, you know, if I look at, at who I was as a, um, in my first semester, and I was a traditional student, but yet was, had nothing else to worry about in my life, right? Outside of getting, you know, a job to provide for a little extra money, but life was simple then. So, you know, you bring in somebody who has to, not only has a family, but is the breadwinner for that family, but wants to take it to the next level as far as the opportunities that they're going to have and their family's going to have. It's important that we're helping them do that. And it's more than just making things available and then saying, come on in. It's doing that outreach that is continual. One thing that we've done for all of our students, but it's made a big impact on our non-traditional, is we're calling them call campaigns. So we call every single student. and We have about 10,000 students. We call every single student, student two to three times a semester and do nothing else but check in and say, how are things going? Any challenges that you're having? What can we help with? And that takes a lot of work. And sometimes it's not the most popular thing on everyone's list of duties that they need to do because we pull in all sorts of resources from the college. But we usually have out of those 10,000, several hundred students that we end up being able to help and follow through on something. And who knows what would have happened with those students if we weren't making those connections. And it rarely, it does sometimes, but it rarely relates to academic issues. It relates to life issues. And that's where the success coach approach is so vital and so important. And, you know, if you were to ask somebody between their kids sacrificing or school, school's going to sacrifice. Right. So if you can work with them on how to balance it all and how we can help them with the school part to where it's not so overbearing and there's still an option there, they don't have to quit, it's huge. Well, well here's my last question for you. What will opportunities look like for higher ed institutions in the future? Uh, I think the biggest opportunity for us in higher ed is that we need to become more responsive and more flexible. So, you know, if I, you know, if we look at what the model is for higher ed, it's what it has been for the longest time. And I think that will also help us in the perception that society has of us and the value of education. If we can show that it's more adaptive and this is why our workforce area has grown so much because it's allowing us to do that. But we need to figure out and continually work on and create structures that allow us to support our community needs in a much more expedient way. Good point. Well, Greg, thanks so much for being on our show. I really enjoyed our conversation. Great talking with you, Dave. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.